Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 232. We'll continue in the book of First Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 4 through 7 and follow with some thoughts about mistaken and misattributed identity. So having mapped out the royal line of David in chapter 3, our chronicler backtracks in chapter 4, or more, back climbs down that family tree to David's tribe of Judah, picking up from chapter 2 as if chapter 3 was a later add-on. And so we get the list of names, this one begot this one, and these are the clans of so-and-so. But then we get to Yabetz in verse 9, who was, quote, more honored than his brothers, and his mother had called his name Yabetz, saying, Why, I have borne him in pain. And Yabetz called out to the God of Israel, saying, May you indeed bless me and increase my territory, and your hand be with me, and may you act that I be not in pain. And God brought about what he had asked. You're a very lucky boy. We also get a shout-out to one of the more obscure judges, Othniel ben Kenaz, and his family line, who the chronicler tells us were artisans. Very nice. The rest of the Judahite line is mapped as the sons of Shimon, and though we do get a little bit of the story of the settlement of Shimon lands, what's more interesting are the odd names here and there which have a distinctly foreign flair. Like Temeni, which sounds like Teman, the Hebrew word for Yemen, or Ahashtarai, which sounds Persian, or Bitya, the daughter of Pharaoh, which is Egyptian. Chapter 5 crosses the Jordan River east to cover the lineage of the tribes of Reuven, Gad, and the eastern half of Menashe. Again, there are lots of begots, etc., but a little dash of history like with Be'era, quote, whom Tiglat-Pilneser, king of Assyria, exiled, or the story of the eastern tribes who, quote, in the days of Saul, they did battle with the Hagrites, who fell into their hands, and they dwelled in their tents along the whole eastern side of Gilead. Like the story of Yabetz, it comes with a quick moral. Those that cry out to God and follow God's commands in life and in battle are assured success. The same moralizing can be found in the line of Menashe, who, quote, betrayed the god of their fathers and went whoring after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. And the god of Israel roused the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tiglat-Pilneser, king of Assyria. And he exiled the Reubenite and the Gadite and the half-tribe of Manasseh and brought them to Chala and Chabor and Hara and the Gozan River until this day. This chapter concludes with the sons of Levi, whose lineage grabs almost as much line inches as the sons of Judah, and will spill over into the next chapter. It's no surprise, as a line of Judahite monarchs is essential for Jewish politics, but without the line of the Levites and priests, Kohanim, there is no Jewish ritual life. Chapter 6 continues with Levite lines and outlines the duties of the Levites. Quote, these did David station over the singing in the house of Adonai from the time the ark came to rest, and they would minister before the sanctuary of the tent of meeting according to their rule concerning their service. But, quote, Aaron and his sons would burn incense on the altar of burnt offering, and on the altar of incense for every task of the Holy of Holies, and to atone for Israel as all that Moses, servant of God, had charged. The chapter concludes with a listing of all 48 Levite cities randomly scattered across the countryside. 
Chapter 7 tells the lines of Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, the Western Manasseites, and Ephraim, which includes a sad story of his sons Ezer and Elad, who, quote, The men of Gath who were born in the land killed them, for they had gone down to take their cattle. And Ephraim, their father, mourned them many days, and his brothers came to console him. The chapter concludes with the line of Asher, beginning with four sons and a daughter, and quote, heads of the patriarchal houses, picked men, valiant warriors, and they traced their lineage through the army in battle, their number 26,000 men. I did warn you in the last episode, these chapters are, well, so boring. Names, names, and more names. This one begot that one. Blah, blah, fucking blah. But occasionally something bubbles up to the tepid still surface. Bear with me. Chapter 6, verse 18. We're now into a second chapter delineating the line of Levites, quote, And these were the ones serving and their sons of the sons of the Kehatites, Haman the chorister, son of Yoel, son of Shmuel, son of Elkanah, son of Yerocham, son of Eliel, son of Toa, son of Tzuf. Blah, blah, fucking blah. So did you catch that before the quote began to pile on the names? Did you catch the third one? Shmuel, son of Elkanah? Does that name ring a bell? I hope it does, because there are two books, well, actually one book divided into two in the Septuagint, named after this Shmuel, son of Elkanah. That's right, that's Samuel. Except, wasn't he an Ephraimite? Doesn't his eponymous book open with the line, quote, There was a man from Ramataim Tzophim, from the high country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, son of Yerocham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Tzuf, an Ephraimite? This is a contradiction that cannot be so easily swept under the rug. So in come the sages, the commentators, to comment on this. Yes, it's a callback to the previous episode. And they surprisingly go with the chronicler. Game recognizes game and declare, yes, Shmuel was a Levite whose family just lived near the highlands of Ephraim, which is why the eponymous book mistakenly attributed his family line to Ephraim. Do you believe that load of bollocks? Which got me thinking about mistaken or misattributed identities. A moment when we think one person is someone when they're actually someone else. And when I think about that, for me, what comes to mind is arguably one of the best Coen Brothers collaborations, The Big Lebowski. And no, I didn't just want to talk about one of my favorite films. There really is a connection here. Go with it, okay? The Big Lebowski centers on the dude, otherwise known as Jeff Lebowski, who early in Act 1 is visited by a pair of thugs demanding money. When he tells them that he has none, one of the thugs pisses on his rug before they realize that they have the wrong man. This was a valued rug. This was a... Yeah, man, it really tied the room together. So this was a valued, uh... Yeah. Tied the room together, dude? My rug. Were you listening to the dude's story, Donnie? What? Were you listening to the dude's story? I was bowling. So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie. You're like a child who wanders in, in the middle of a movie and what, wants to know... Walter, what's the point, man? There's no reason. Here's my point, dude. There's no fucking reason why these... Yeah, Walter, what's your point? Huh? Walter, what is the point? 
Look, we all know who is at fault here. What the fuck are you talking about? Huh? The rest of the film finds us on a series of madcap encounters as the dude tries to right that wrong. In other words, revenge, sorta, for his rug. The film, however, is about a lot more than that. Indeed, one could say that The Big Lebowski revolves around missing money, rival factions trying to get it, and the protagonist, a loner of sorts, by nature is caught up in the middle. Seen that way, The Big Lebowski feels a lot more like a typical Western, and if you think about it, it resembles another Coen Brothers film, the Best Picture winning No Country for Old Men from 2007. Either way, the dude could be seen as an urban L.A. cowboy wearing flip-flops instead of spurred boots who runs afoul of a skeevy pornographer who sends thugs to his house, not cattle rustlers or drug cartels like in No Country. His lover is a sexually uh, adventurous bohemian artist, not some simple country gal, and he downs white Russians instead of hard whiskey at the saloon. And his close friend dies of a heart attack in a parking lot brawl, not of a gunshot in a dramatic shootout. The dude is nonetheless a man under siege. He's caught up in a deal gone wrong, trying to restore order in his stoner way, which brings him into contact and conflict with his namesake, the big Lebowski, Jeffrey Lebowski, who disapproves of the dude's way of life. Wow. Fuck it. Oh, fuck it. Yes, that's your answer. That's your answer to everything. Tattoo it on your forehead. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. My advice to you is to do what your parents did. Get a job, sir. The bombs will always lose. Do you hear me, Lebowski? The big Lebowski may well be the true villain of this film. The capitalist who embezzles money and defrauds inner-city children of color, all the while clout-chasing as he scorns the dude's 60s-fueled, free-spirited liberalism. And so it's ironic that the dude is mistaken for this guy, especially when the dude casually informs Maud Lebowski, after impregnating her, that he helped author the Port Huron Statement, an actual manifesto of 60s-era liberal campus activism, and that he was one of the Seattle Seven, a real activist protest group in the 70s. Before he got into bowling and weed and white Russians, he actually did something to make the world a little bit better. The dude, as the stranger informs us in the opening scene, is ultimately, quote, the man for his time and place, the early 90s. And even though he is scammed out of his commission in the end, he still has all he wants. Bowling, weed, white Russians, and a good friend. And the recognition that he is, in fact, truly and properly the dude. And yeah, when you're sitting there in your silk upholstered chair Talking to some rich folks that Okay, so that transition could have been smoother. And if Chronicles were written and directed by the Coen brothers, it wouldn't waste so many chapters in Act 1 on names, but here we are. So I'm wondering why the Chronicler decided, despite how Shmuel was identified in his own book, that he was actually and truly and properly a Levite that somehow his own book would misidentify him. Considering the broader project in these early boring chapters, I might offer this hypothesis. The Chronicler is clearly preoccupied with two matters in this otherwise scintillating section. 
the purity of the Davidic line going all the way back to Judah, and the sanctity of the Levites and their sub-clan, the Kohanim, the priests. These are the men charged with keeping Israel's spiritual life on track and the temple functioning properly. No one who handled matters of sanctity, like near offerings to God, could be from any other tribe. And since Shmuel, in his day, performed that most sacred of rituals as part of his spiritual leadership duties, he must have been a Levite. It could not be otherwise. And so, slipping in these lines and revising another family line in this chapter, he corrects what he considered a glaring oversight in the former prophets. It's yet another example of fan fiction at work. And as we see in a later volume of fan fiction, I mean Midrash, called Leviticus Rabbah, the commentator, like the dude, abides. Like we heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 233, when we continue in First Chronicles with chapters 8 through 11.